you know, we've done the market research. We know that the younger the demographic skews, the more important ESG becomes in their minds from a consumer standpoint. You know, people want to buy from brands that they believe are doing the right thing for the planet, for people, you know, in their communities. And that's just going to become more important. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition hosted by Smart Energy Decisions' own Deborah Channel. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, Deborah digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. I'm your host, Deborah Channel, and today we are continuing our Heard at NZF series on Smart Energy Voices. Heard at NZF is a mini-series of live interviews that we did with energy customers at various stages of their decarbonization strategies while we were at our recent Net Zero Forum. In this episode, we're sharing multiple interviews with energy customers in the commercial space. Today, you'll be hearing from Joshua Witte, Director of Energy, Sustainability, and ESG at Dollar Tree Stores, Rebecca Hensley, Senior Manager of Environment Programs at CSX, and Gary Hilberg, Chief Sustainability Officer at Local Bounty. Let's begin with Joshua Witte. So Josh, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. And why don't you just introduce yourself and tell us uh, a little bit about Dollar Tree and your role with the company? Certainly. So I have been enrolled at Dollar Tree for just over two years now. Everything energy and sustainability on the retail side, also inclusive of the DC organization rolls into my team. So we handle all the utilities, all the energy efficiency projects, all of our decarbonization efforts and our climate change risk mitigation strategies roll into my team. Okay. So that keeps you busy. Uh, Not at all. No, no. You have plenty of time. So let's start first with a quick word association. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase net zero? Energy, waste, climate change, risk. Risk. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's dive into that a little bit. What do you mean by risk? Well, there's risk in how you approach it through different elements of your strategy, whether that's you know energy procurement, utilization of things like PPAs, VPPAs, and there's risk mitigation piece to it too, as you're you're trying to mitigate the risk of future impacts of climate change to your enterprise. Where are your stores located? You know, Sixteen thousand. Where are they? All of the lower forty-eight. As we like to say, uh, we have no state or no stores in Alaska and Hawaii. We have just under 300 stores in Canada throughout all of the provinces for the most part, except for the Maritimes. So basically almost all of North America. There's somewhere there's either a family dollar or Dollar Tree store near you. So you're working with all levels of weather and events and everything. You've yeah. got to deal with it all. Yep. We cover all the ASHRAE climate zones. So <laughs> I guess congratulations on that. That's pretty good. Check all those boxes. <laughs> All right. So where is Dollar Tree, would you say, in terms of its net zero journey? I would say we are just starting along the path. Previous to about two years ago, we had no carbon reduction goals in place whatsoever. We put in some in place at the time, which were not the most robust. It was an intensity-based goal, 25% reduction over a 10-year baseline from 2021. And that was just scope one and scope two. No real concrete scope three reduction goals or efforts. There are some nebulous procurement-related goals that were pretty weak at the end of the day. This past summer, we committed to commit to net zero, which means next July, we'll be announcing our net zero commitment. We're going to set science-based targets aligned with the Paris Accords and go all in net zero by 2050. That's good. And what made you decide to go with science-based targets? Well, it wasn't altruism, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) We have had a very vocal 
segment within our investor community that has been pushing us to get more green, as they like to say, for many years now. There were several proposals in the past to dedicate us to a net zero path that were defeated at the board level. But finally, the resolution went through, and then we had a complete turnover on our board where we have a lot of ESG-minded board members on the board of directors that are pushing us in that direction as well. Mm -hmm. So you have that support there, but what's the biggest challenge in terms of getting a strategy up and running? It's internal buy-in. You know, Dollar Tree is a corporation that for a very, very long time it did things a certain way, and, and that's the way we're going to do it because this is the way we've always done it, which is the worst excuse in the world. So change comes slowly to an organization like ours, uh, especially with a widespread geographic footprint like we have. So, you know, you could go into our organization today and probably at least 50% of the, the mid to high level associates in the corporate headquarters wouldn't even know we have net zero goals. So it's not been an area that we've dedicated any resources to. And, and there are, you know, there, I, w I won't say there's hostility to it, but there's just resistance to getting on the bus, so to speak, to embracing the goal that we have set and, and fully buying into it. Okay. And also in terms of the variety of locations that you're operating in. That puts a whole other level of challenge to this. How do you deal with that? Because it, it can't be cookie cutter solutions. It's not. We have to take a very portfolio type approach to what we do. We, you know, we look at it by region, by state, by banner. I mean, there's numerous different ways we approach it from a strategic sense, but it has to be, we have to try to be nimble because, you know, with the markets the way they are, you have to move fast, take advantage of different offerings that are out there, but you have to be mindful of it too. And again, it's that those internal barriers often we're our own worst enemy sometimes when it comes to these types of things. So you mentioned uh, utilities early on when we, you were talking about uh, your position. Tell us about your relationship with the utilities. Are they helpful? Because they're not always. <laughs> it varies greatly between utilities. We have very good relationships with many utilities, and we have dedicated account managers that work hard for us. We have other utilities that won't even pick up the phone when we call. So I would say, and I'm not going to name names, I'm not going to point any fingers, but you know who you are. So yeah, that's been a challenge. I find coming to shows like this, shows like EEI, you know, some other industry shows is a great way to maintain a relationship with your utilities and your account managers, because that is important. We just had that hurricane in Florida, and I was able to call up my account managers at, at FPNL and get a bit of a quicker response, understanding that, you know, we're not very high on the priority list in situations like that, but it does pay benefits. Yeah, sort of managing that relationship and getting ahead with that, that makes a lot of sense. And again, operating in so many locations, uh, that's hard. Yeah, it gets problematic in the smaller location, the little co-ops, because we have very, very remote stores, especially with the Family Dollar banner. And these little co-ops, they just don't have the resources to dedicate an account manager to anything, more or less, someone as large as us. Also, another challenge is that most of your locations are leased rather than owned. So I imagine there's some limitations in what you can do. How is that working for you? Yeah, it's a big challenge. We work with some very progressive, larger land developers and landlords. I'm not going to mention anyone, but there are several, some based out in California, some uh, across the country that have their own sustainability goals and are willing to partner with us on things like landlord rooftop solar projects, on efficiency projects, EV charging. Then we have many, many one-offs or very small landlords that have absolutely no interest in even maintaining their buildings, more or less, making them energy efficient or you know, making them net zero energy or anything like that. So it does create a lot of challenges and unfortunately it takes us out of the running for a lot of projects too. Right. If it's not a priority for them, you're not going to be able to make it that way. Yeah, we could never get them to buy into it, which is tough. Yeah, definitely a challenge. So with all of these challenges that you're facing, what's been the biggest surprise you know, in these last couple of years as you're putting the strategy together and aiming towards uh, setting your goals? I think the level of buy-in at the highest level of the company has surprised me the most. Once you know, we started talking about this at a strategic level, you know, the inertia started going away and 
guys that I never thought would buy into something like this have gotten on board with the program and then championed it to push it forward. Yeah. What do you think the turning point was for them? What pushed them over to the, that side? We had a unique turning point specific to our own journey where we had an incident at one of our distribution centers in early 2022, where this is a weird way for this to sustainability program to spawn out of this, but a video went around of one of the DC associates hand feeding a rat that was sitting on a pile of Lay's potato chips, got on YouTube, a bunch of activists got a hold of it, things spiraled out of control, the FDA got involved, the EPA got involved, any sort of regulatory agency took a hard look at us. We had to close 500 stores for months at a time. We had to shut that DC down. Millions of dollars of remediation work later, we realized we had a culture problem, a tolerance problem, and a compliance problem. So this, you know, the focus on safety, on health, on compliance, on being better neighbors, the S of the ESG, as we like to say, all of that just got bubbled up to the surface and, and forced us to change. Okay, that's probably the oddest entry to ESG that I've heard. <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Wow. There literally were some silver linings in that awful, awful incident. Yeah, yeah, that was a very tense time for the company. And a lot of the leaders that were there at that time of the incident, they're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have this new progressive leadership that that wants to embrace ESG, that wants to push forward in, in the sustainability space. Interesting. Interesting. And that sort of leads into my next question, which is how aware are the customers, the shoppers in your store of sustainability? And, you know, you talked about the board really driving some of this. Are your customers, do they have a point of view on this that you're hearing? They do. Our customers are not yet aware of what we're doing in the ESG space. Just, and that's solely because, one, we've only just started, really. And two, we're not very good about communicating it either, because that's historically we have been very reticent about communicating these types of things publicly. That's changing. And they're going to know about it. And, you know, we've done the market research. We know that the younger the demographic skews, the more important ESG becomes in their minds from a consumer standpoint. You know, people want to buy from brands that they believe are doing the right thing for the planet, for people. You know, in their communities. And that's just going to become more important. So it's something we're focusing on now. But the average consumer probably has no idea that we do anything in the ESG space. They probably think the greenest thing about Dollar Tree is our logo. <laughs> but once you get the program out there, that's going to become a competitive advantage for you. Absolutely. We, we really want to differentiate ourselves in the space and lead in the value retail industry. Okay. Well, now I want to end with sort of a general question here. You know, thinking about the state of clean energy overall, what do you see as the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity moving forward? The supply side of the entire industry is going to be a tremendous challenge. I think there's going to be issues with the transition from fossils to EV, for instance. That's a major challenge. The investment isn't there yet. Supply is always questionable with the panels coming from where they come from and just the limitations there. For us, we are challenged because we're a late entrant in the market. And the early adopters were the ones that got the best deals. And the space is only going to become more competitive. It's going to come at a higher price point. It's just going to be difficult to play in the space and be nimble and be able to take advantage where, when we need to, when we're so late adopting, comparatively speaking. Right. Being nimble. Yeah, that's a quality that's going to be needed for sure. And we are not good at that. But we're learning. We're trying to be. There you go. Change. It's a good thing. Sometimes. All right. Well, you're going to have a lot of stories to tell in the months and years ahead as you implement these plans. So we're looking forward to hearing more from you. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting journey. Yeah, for sure. So thank you so much for being with us, Joshua Witte, uh, Dollar Tree, and best of luck with these plans. Great. Thank you very much. And now here's Rebecca Hensley. One note on this interview, you're going to hear a different voice in the conversation, and that's our producer, Maria Faella, who conducted several interviews live at the event. So Becky, can you give us a brief description of CSX and your role there? 
So CSX Transportation is a freight rail company servicing east of the Mississippi. We have about 20,000 miles of track and about 20,000, 22,000 employees. So a lot of operations going on. My role is Senior Manager Environmental Programs. So I help manage Clean Air Act compliance and then also sustainability and ESG reporting for the company. All right, let's do a quick word association. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase net zero? Just say opportunities. Opportunities, say more. Well, we just have a lot of, our industry is definitely in transition and there's a lot of opportunities for how we're going to meet those next generation goals for net zero and climate reduction. So we're, we're climate change, preparation, resiliency, and carbon reduction. Yeah, so you mentioned you're in a big transition. Where is CSX in its decarbonization journey? So we are, I'll just say, on track. And so what's nice is we do have SBTI commitments, but we're not aligned yet with 1.5 degree C. So that's going to be the next kind of transition for us is uh, realigning, recalculating, and determining what's going to be required for those transition or that transportation transition plan to help us get to that next phase of carbon reduction. So that's in the next year. Okay. So how is CSX getting started in creating and implementing these carbon reduction strategies? Well, we've done a lot of work on efficiencies. A lot of our greenhouse gas inventory is really based on our diesel fuel usage in our locomotives. That's about 80 plus percentage of our emissions intensity is based on diesel fuel. So finding the next source of fuel for that power production or that power of our locomotives is really top of mind. So whether it's battery electric locomotives, alternative fuels like biodiesel, renewable diesel, and hydrogen. So we are kind of in all of those spaces at the same time, trying to figure out the long-term solution that's going to work best for us. Yeah. What have your biggest challenges been so far? Well, a lot of the challenges with uh, the renewable diesel and the alternative fuels are a lot of those supplies of those products are all going west to California. So we are east of the Mississippi. So having a, a supply chain that is reliable or dependable coming east for us is going to be a challenge or an opportunity for those uh, suppliers here. And then the next on the big long-term solution is the hydrogen locomotive. And we are right now working on building a, a hydrogen locomotive in our Huntington shops and uh, hope to be able to test it soon and, and understand how that's going to work for the rest of the CSX and the industry. Wow, that's really exciting. We'll make sure to follow up with you, you know, when, to hear when that news breaks. What's been the biggest surprise as you've worked through these issues? I think the excitement within our own company of let's figure out what's next and let's get on board for what are going to be solutions and operations and facilities and uh, procurement. So a lot of excitement internally in our company for figuring out those next steps. So not just on the locomotive side, but for power purchase agreements and energy usage. And that's been the great way of seeing how the procurement team's on board too, of trying to find the right solutions that are going to fit for us. Yeah, it sounds like everybody's really busy. Well, there's a lot of work going on for sure. Are the company's sustainability commitments driven from the top down or has it been driven by environmental and energy functions? What does this process look like? It's definitely been a top down process. And I think that's that's been really helpful. We have a lot of great support from our leadership team and our CEO. And I think that's been very helpful in recognizing all the way down to the bottom, all the way down to our folks on the ballast line working on the ground. And that's been very helpful. So these are corporate goals, the leadership supports it, and we're all kind of helping to figure out how do we make it work and how do we get it all to move forward. Yeah. Are there any early wins or achievements you want to celebrate? Let's see. Early wins is kind of on uh, some 
fuel testing. We, because of our industry, we have to be EPA certified for emissions. And so um, doing some fuel testing right now where that looks very promising and it'll help us kind of bring our carbon reduction down another 20% and help us meet our 2030 goals. And then, you know, the next steps is we're kind of hoping and, and waiting to hear about maybe using some battery electric locomotives, which is exciting. And at the same time, going to mean we're going to have to figure out how to meet our scope two reduction or scope two renewable target of meeting 50% renewables for scope two. So those are great challenges. And, you know, we'll see it as a win when we get some battery electric power, but then we'll have to figure out how we're going to solve for scope two at the same time. And then it's going to have all, all sorts of new opportunities, as you call them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So final question. I feel like I have to rephrase it for you because it's what are the biggest challenges that you see about the state of the clean energy market today? And what are the biggest opportunities? But I think you're going to say the challenges are opportunities as well. It's interesting coming from this industry because there's just so much excitement in what's next. You know, our industry is 200 years old. Our company is 200 years old. It's We went from coal for 100 years to diesel powered for 100 years. We're really at that edge of what's next and finding the right energy solution to take us through that next 100 years, 200 years is going to be the next great, exciting piece for how it all works together. What solutions next for us to better fit for our customers and all sides of that supply chain? Yeah, very exciting. We look forward to following your journey, seeing where you land, seeing all the new stuff you're developing. And until the next Net Zero Forum. All right, great. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Maria. Our pleasure. And last but not least, here's Gary Hilberg. So Gary Hilberg of Local Bounty, let's start with an overview of your company and your role. Local Bounty is a indoor agriculture firm or a controlled environment agriculture firm that produces leafy greens, lettuces across the country. We have four operational facilities and two facilities in construction. So we're growing from the Northwest, our original facilities in Montana. We have facilities operating in California and Georgia, and we're adding facilities in Texas and Pasco, Washington, Eastern Washington. Our objective is to be able to grow high quality produce that lasts longer for the consumers close to the retailers. So you can eliminate the transportation cost, carbon impact, and impact on quality of produce from traditional agriculture, which in North America gets produced in California and Arizona only. So working to be local, provide our products to our customers locally. Okay, so we're going to start with a quick word association. What comes to mind when I say net zero? Challenging and necessary. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so what are your net zero or decarbonization goals? We've committed from the very beginning of Local Bounty to be sustainable across all aspects of our environment, our people, and our governance. And on the environmental side, we worked very hard to understand our footprint early in our process several years ago. And then late last year, we worked with our board and they came out with some carbon commitments that have been publicized in that we're committed to grow carbon-free leafy greens by 2030 and be carbon neutral in 2050. And they also committed to us establishing or applying for a science-based target this year. So that's what we're working on now. That is a challenge. So how far is the company you've got your date set out? You've got your goals. How far along are you? I would say we're on track. I would there's one CEA firm that has a science-based target. And if you're not familiar with science-based targets, science-based targets have an SME path, which as in a company with less than 500 employees, we expect to apply under that. So we're well on our path to an SBT. On the carbon tracking, we understand and have reported for two years on our scope one and scope two emissions. And we've committed to defining our scope three emissions and started to portions portion of those as we understand them. We're very confident that our scope three emissions will not exceed the 20 or 30% tar- necess- you know, 
of our total emissions per SBT. So we'll be able to apply for SBT just based on scope one and two. Okay. So what have been some of the challenges in getting to this point? The biggest challenge, I think, is the lack of understanding in the ag business and of really what it means. I think many companies are out there assuming they can make commitments. They're not backed by science. And we spend a lot of time understanding our emissions. The biggest challenge in carbon with greenhouses in particular, we grow a combination of vertical and greenhouses. So we have a, a different mix than a pure greenhouse. But all greenhouses in North America, except a couple, are heated by natural gas. And we don't see a path to decarbonizing natural gas in the next decade or so because it's cost and things like that. So we have to change the way our facilities are built. And the industry is just sort of understanding that. And so we've worked, we have a project that's mostly electric being built in Texas. And we see that project as a path to being 100% electric, which then puts us on a path to decarbonization. So as our sort of internal statement is very similar to many we want to improve our yield and our efficiency, grow more in the same space, do it as efficiently as possible, electrify and decarbonize. And we think the path to decarbonization is through electricity. Okay. Something you said uh, in the beginning, a key to your business is the locations, having the greenhouses close to where you're going to be selling this product to take out the transportation. That regional aspect, you can't really be very cookie cutter. Every area is going to have their own issues. Or is it, do you find more commonality or more differences as you're setting these up? I think there is some differences. It's a very good point, very good question. What you tend to find is most greenhouses internationally have been built in cooler, drier climates, and they tend to use simpler heating and cooling mechanisms. What you're seeing in North America due to population locations in the southeast and south of the Mason-Dixon line in the southern United States is you have to use mechanical cooling. We have that in our Georgia facility. And so you completely change the dynamics of growing. So we really have, I would say, a, we have a lot of specific details within them, but you have almost a a big C, a highly controlled environment in the southern climate, and you have a little C, like our facilities in California, quite honestly, have perfect weather 10 months a year. So they're not, they don't have to be, and they shouldn't be. So they're very low in energy and facilities, but, you know, they're also in California where there's a large growth of local. So we, those facilities are well located for Southern California, and we're very excited about them. But, you know, it's a great opportunity to be local and close. Right. Yeah, that, again, that's a key to your business. So let's talk about the funding picture. How's that going for you? <laughs> well, I mean, it's very public. The controlled environment, ag, you know, has had a lot of changes in dynamics, which is very normal for growth industries. We are very well funded. We've got great support from our financial partners. We're publicly traded. Our financial team does a great job getting that together. On specific energy projects, being an agriculture company has a lot of great opportunities. The USDA, we're qualified under USDA. We just recently received authorization for over a half a million dollars of USDA REAP grants for energy efficiency in one of our California facilities. And we're using this to upgrade our boilers. We're getting the boilers that are significantly more efficient. We're able to put in curtains, improve our lighting, upgrade our lighting from traditional lighting to LED, saving energy. And the USA REAP programs are, US programs are difficult. You have to have the resources, but our, our company's done a great job of supporting that. And we, we're getting these resources done and, and so able to do millions of dollars of projects and get great support from USDA. And also the local utilities. There's utility support for gas efficiencies. So I'd encourage everybody out there to make sure they understand what's out there. And of course, the IRA, the 2022 IRA opens up huge opportunities for smaller businesses to get access to investment tax credits. There's investment tax credits on thermal storage. There's investment tax for on-site power. On, there's energy efficiency credits. So there's just a, a lot of opportunity. It takes work, but it's very aligned with sustainability. Well, now when you said it takes work, I mean, I remember when the IRA came out and everybody's like, oh my God, how do we understand this? There's opportunity, but it's hard to parse it. At first, did your company do that itself? Yourselves, did you use outside 
resources to figure it out? We did most of it internally because we feel that you have to understand the programs because we found a lot of outsourced resources don't understand the agriculture business. And you have to stack the IRA work with the USDA work. And so we've done a lot of ourselves. We will go to our tax advisors as work. Our, our finance team has done that. We know there's a lot of work, but we feel that the scale of it is directly aligned with our commitment to be transparent and really improve our businesses, reduce our cost of operations, and reduce our environmental impacts. Okay. I want to ask a question about the customer-facing part of your business. Is decarbonization a competitive advantage? Are they aware of it? Is that helping your sales? So as a producer of food products, lettuce and other high-quality products, we end up, and our customers tend to be retailers and restaurants and the Cisco's of the world and folks like that. We're a scope three emission, and these companies are now setting scope three emissions. So they're aware of it. The impact of produce versus meat and dairy is very low, but there is a great opportunity to meet that. So almost every retail in America has some kind of target. Many of them have scope three targets, and almost all of them have food waste targets. One of the biggest advantages of growing close, indoor, high-quality product to our retail partners is the waste throughout the food chain. Our, our partners have more time to sell it. Our consumers are of our product have a higher quality product in their fridge for longer times. I think all of us have taken some kind of produce, put it in the fridge, forgot about it for three days, and then thrown it away. Our life extension is much, much greater than that. So it's a great opportunity to reduce food waste. And that's a huge opportunity for us because the stuff that's thrown away, you have to remember, was grown, harvested, delivered, packaged. You bought it and you threw it away. So we've wasted all those resources and all that time and all that money. So it's a great opportunity. And I think folks are starting to understand that. The retailers have a great understanding of it, and we're seeing a lot of support. Okay. So as you're working towards the goals that you stated earlier on, what are some of the wins that you've achieved so far? What's progress been looking like? Our wins have been some of our upgrading facilities. We mentioned some of the USDA work. We've been able to upgrade our boiler systems and our lights and our curtains at our California facilities. We've been able to modify our future designs to be using more efficient lighting. We've moved to 100% LED lights on our new facilities. We used to use some HPS accommodation. We've moved to 100% LED lights. Our new designs have included rainwater collection, a lot of water reduction technologies. And then we've also been able to, like I mentioned, shift one of our facilities, our newest facility, to a more electric in its heating and cooling. And our other facilities, they've been future-proof to allow them to shift to electric heating in the future. So we've done a lot of that. So a lot of efficiency efforts, which we love the most, because most of what we do is double materiality. We're at a point now where almost every one of our sustainability efforts has payback. So we're getting financial benefits and sustainability benefits, which I think needs to be the focus of sustainability because so much of it is misunderstood. And as long as we can keep costs down, you know, you can pay for your sustainability efforts in the early times. The late process may cost money, but at that point, I think the consumer will value it more highly. And again, if you have those early wins and something to show for it, it makes the later, more painful parts a little more palatable. I think so. And I think we're very confident that the industry and particularly the consumer starts to understand and value it. I mean, if you're paying a little bit more for a higher quality product, you know, what we do it across our lifestyle, right? You pay a little bit more because you expect more. And we think we provide more and our consumers will start to expect more and be willing to acknowledge that it's worth the investment and probably save some money because they throw less stuff away. Okay. For my final question, just big picture thinking about the state of clean energy today, what do you see as the biggest challenge and what's the biggest opportunity that you see coming down the line? I think the biggest challenge will be the availability of clean energy when you need it. I think there's a lot of, I spend a lot of time in the energy business. A lot of people will say they're, they're 100% renewable energy, but I don't think any company in the world is actually 100% aligned with renewable energy, time of use, and region. And so I think that's an articulation you have, which really needs goes back to how you operate your facilities. Our facilities are extremely flexible. We can turn a lot of large loads off anytime. 
And so we see our ability to be flexible to be a, an opportunity to address the challenge of the intermittent necessary of renewable resources. Okay. Well, Gary, thank you for your time today. I wish you a lot of luck going forward. I look forward to hearing more about the company. Thank you, Deborah. Appreciate your time too. Many thanks to Joshua Witte, Rebecca Hensley, and Gary Hilberg. We look forward to watching their journeys. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for tuning into this podcast and being part of Smart Energy Decisions. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn how you can become part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, like the Net Zero Forum, click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're really honored to have this opportunity to share conversations with leaders of the energy transition in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. 